We've just had the Olympics, we're into the Paralympics, but of course 16 years ago we hosted the Olympics. Does anyone get to go and see any of the events? Yeah, a number of you. Uh, I was working at the Olympics in a counter-terrorism role with the army, but I did get to go as a spectator to watch a couple of the events. Uh, and I was in the main stadium, uh, along with Sarah, uh, for the, the finish of the women's marathon. Was anyone there for that? A few of you. That was a fantastic experience, which I will never forget. See, the marathon was won by a Japanese runner in an Olympic record time. And, and people applauded for her. They, they run into the stadium, they've got a lap to go, and then they finish. Uh, and as the other runners came in, uh, they were applauded, but particularly passionately by those from their country. So when the Australian runners came in, a great round of applause, uh, and, uh, and people, spectators from all over the world, particularly applauding their runners. Uh, but when the 43rd runner ran into the stadium, Three quarters of an hour after the winner had finished, the stadium erupted. Because she was an East Timorese athlete. This is 2000, in 1999, uh, after, after an Australian-led coalition went in to stabilise East Timor, they voted for independence. Uh, but a year later, they still hadn't... Um, set up all the structures they needed to have a nation, to have their nation represented at the Olympics. And so there were four East Timorese athletes uh, who were competing under the International Olympic Committee banner. Aguira Amaral, a year before, didn't own a pair of running shoes. She ran on the soft sand to protect her feet or in street shoes. And she was not winning this event. In fact, as she ran in, she crossed over the finish line, uh, fell to her knees to thank God, and then one of the officials said, you've still got a lap to go. <laughs> but she got up and she ran that lap like a victory lap, as if she'd won the whole thing. Because the whole stadium, regardless of what nation they were from and who they were cheering for, were on their feet cheering for this runner. Not only for who she was, but for the nation that she represented, this nation that had come from uh, years of oppression into its own right. And so the stadium was united in joyous admiration for this runner. Uh, those of you who were there, will no doubt remember that. Those who weren't can imagine what that was like. And yet, that is just a tiny glimpse of what awaits us. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 on page 1241. Page 1241, Revelation chapter 7. It 
This is a picture that God gives us of what is to come in the new creation. I'm looking from verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is a great picture, not just a stadium full of people from all different backgrounds cheering for one athlete, but people too numerous to number from every single nation and tribe and tongue gathered together in blissful happiness, worshipping their God and Saviour who is there in their midst. This is not a selfish king demanding worship. This is his people in joyous celebration in admiration of what their God and Saviour has done for them. It's that idea, in fact, in our last song that we picked up, I'll flick back, when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. People from every nation, tribe and tongue gathered together, marvelling, wondering, at God's love for us and what he has done for us in Christ our Saviour. What a great picture that is. That's what awaits us. That is the culmination of all God's purposes. That was God's goal before he even created the world, would be to gather people from every nation, tribe, tongue, gather them together in glorious praise and worship of Christ our Saviour. That's been God's goal all along. But he didn't start there. That's still to come. To understand how we'll get there, it's worth winding the clock back a bit in the history of the Bible. This has always been God's plan since before he created the first man and the woman and placed them in the garden that they might enjoy relationship with him. But like all of us since then, they thought they knew better. They doubted the goodness of God and so they sinned and were cast out of the garden and suffered conflict and hostility between them and God and amongst one another. And human existence outside of the, the paradise has been characterised by hostility. But it was always God's plan to act to end that hostility and having created people, he sought to bless his people. The way he chose to do this initially was through one man, and then through one family, and then through one nation. And this is the overarching theme of the whole Old Testament. God chose a man, Abram, called him to leave his wider family and to take him to a land that God would show, them, show him. 
And as all my scripture kids know, God made three promises to Abram. He promised him that he would give him land. He promised that he would give him a family, a great family that would become a nation. And he promised that he would bless him. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's purpose was to take Abram, who he renames Abraham, which means father of many, to demonstrate his promise to him, to take Abraham and through him bring blessing to all peoples on the earth. And as you follow the path of the, uh, the Bible, we see that God's promise of blessing to all the nations is uh, primarily achieved through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom in the, the language of the New Testament, we might all become descendants of Abraham through faith in Christ. But we, before we got to that point, God chose Abraham, but then his family and his descendants who became the people of Israel. And it was God's purpose to use Israel to bring about his good purposes. Israel had a special role to play in bringing blessing to the nations. Firstly, as an instrument of God's revelation, as God revealed himself to the people. Uh, God showed the world who he was through his interactions with Israel. And so when he chose Israel and said, I'm going to take you out of slavery in Egypt... This was to demonstrate not only to the Israelites, but to the whole world who God was. He says in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So God was doing that to, to reveal himself to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians and the other nations. In Exodus chapter 7, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. But not only through God's interaction with Israel, but how Israel were to live as God's people was to bring blessing to the nations and to point people to God. God said he was going to bring them out of Egypt to make them a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. They were to be a people, a nation, who model what it's like to live with God as its ruler, to exalt God in their life, in their worship, in all that they do, so that the nations might come to know and trust in him, so that people from the nations will be joined with his people. What have you done with page three? <laughs> but as any of us who've read the history, read the Old Testament know, Israel didn't always do such a good job in its task to be a witness, a light to the nations. Israel faltered and failed. Uh, and in the latter half of the Old Testament, we see the prophets looking for this, this role that Israel was still to play that would come in the future. The prophets look forward to when God would again act amongst his people, a future where Jerusalem or Zion 
would act again as a magnet for the nations, that people would be drawn to her so that they might learn about the Lord and his ways. This would be something that God would initiate in the last days, the day of the Lord. Zechariah says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says, many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go up at once to entreat the Lord and to seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. In parallel to this demonstration, this, this, um, uh, this view of the future where God would gather the nations to him again, the prophets, and particularly Isaiah, talk about one that God would send, a suffering servant who would come and suffer on behalf of his people for their sins. And Isaiah talks about this suffering servant being the one that would bring back those of Israel God had kept and make him a light for the nations that the Lord's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This suffering servant would be the one who would restore those in Israel who were faithful to God, restore them to their purpose and to reach out as a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to those nations around, that which Israel was intended to be but had failed. And of course we see all of this coming to um, bear fruit in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the suffering servant. As we read through the Gospels that describe Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that his ministry was primarily to Israel, to the Jewish people, to the lost sheep of Israel, as he called them. And although Jesus' ministry was primarily to Israel, his ministry was for the whole world. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came into the world because God sent him to reach out to the world. But he would do this primarily through his earthly ministry to Israel. But we certainly get hints throughout Jesus' ministry uh, of the goal of reaching out again to all the nations. So we see in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, the Magi, the wise men from the east, foreigners, who are the first ones to come and acknowledge who Jesus is and to worship the infant Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, the first encounter we uh, see described there of Jesus' interaction with a non-Jew, a Gentile, is in the reading that we had just before from Luke chapter 7, where Jesus encounters a Roman centurion. Now I chose this reading in particular uh, not primarily to demonstrate the importance of ministry to military people, uh, although it does do that. Um, I didn't choose it primarily either to illustrate the particular keen insight of military officers uh, who were able to see what clearly and understand what clearly most people in Israel were unable to do, although it might achieve that but particularly because Jesus' ministry to this centurion in his household 
foreshadows the expansion of his ministry amongst all the nations, reaching out to the Gentiles and foreshadowing their reception of him. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is the one who is presented as the true Israel. He is the one who is obedient where Israel wasn't. He is the one through whom God achieves his purposes where Israel failed. And Jesus is the one through whom the promises to Abraham, particularly of blessing to the nations, is achieved. And Jesus himself is also pictured as forming a new Israel, a new Israel that would do what Israel was called to do. Instead of 12 tribes, he chooses 12 disciples. And just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so he sends them into the world, that his 12 disciples and all those with them would go into the world so that empowered by his Holy Spirit, they would be witnesses, he tells them, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's, as God sent Jesus into the world, Jesus sends his disciples out, as we saw on page 1000, Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that, God had, that Jesus had commanded them. And as we read through the book of Acts and the letters of the New Testament, we see God at work bringing about these purposes through those disciples that Jesus has sent out. So we see through this whole history of uh, the Bible, God at work to bring about his plan of all nations gathered around the throne of Christ and worshipping him. God's plan from before the beginning of creation to bring about that. And just as Jesus sent his, uh, his disciples into the world to make disciples of all nations, we see that played out in, in the New Testament. God continues to work out his purposes heading to that great goal through his disciples that are sent out through the world today. God is working his purposes out through his church in the world. This is what mission is. This is what we're remembering today and focused on in our mission gift day. Mission comes from a word that means to be sent. And so God is giving this mission to the church that we might be sent out, sent out to proclaim Christ, sent out so that those in rebellion against God might come to him and receive his forgiveness, might know the salvation that comes, sending people out so that God's church might be grown up in maturity. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God chooses, God has always chosen to bring about his purposes through his people. And God chooses now to bring about his purposes through his people, the church, to be sent out 
so that all may hear about Christ and put their faith in him. Mission is the task of the church, the whole church. That, that task that was given to Israel to be set apart uh, is now transferred and, and consumed by the church. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you, talking to the Christians scattered throughout Turkey and that area, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We, the church, now have that role to be set apart for God's purpose, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the task of the church, but it's not the end goal of the church. As John Piper writes, missions are not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. We're not yet at that point where people from every nation, tribe, tongue are gathered around the throne worshipping Christ. And so God is working towards that um, point through us, the church, involved in mission. So what does that mean for us here at St Stephen's? Because we are part of the church of Christ. We are given this mission. We know God's love for us. We've received his forgiveness. We know eternal life, true life, through faith in Christ. And we trust, I believe, that salvation is found nowhere else apart from Christ, in no other name. Therefore, we have a responsibility. Mission Mission to the whole world is not an optional extra for a church. It's not something we can choose to take on above our normal ministry. It's an essential part of who we are as a church. And so we have a responsibility here at St Stephen's to think through as individuals and also as a church collectively... We need to think through and work out what our place is in God's plan for world mission. What's my place and what's our place as a church in God's world mission? Now, I suspect that much of our role is to be carried out in our local area, bearing witness to Christ here in Willoughby. God has placed us as a church, placed us as individuals to come together as a church and to bear witness to him here in Willoughby uh, and beyond, through, through our local area, through our relationships, uh, through those existing relationships we have and those which we foster. But that's not the extent of our responsibility. People get nervous at this point, don't they? In talking about mission and, and our responsibility for it. Well, let me say, I'm, not, I'm convinced that God hasn't called every one of us to cross cultures, whether in Australia and overseas, to go as missionaries out from Willoughby. 
He hasn't called all of us to give up our careers or our homes or our support networks to go to other places. That's a relief, isn't it? But maybe he has called some here to do that. He hasn't called all of us to do that, but he has called all of us who trust in Jesus to take up our cross daily and follow after him. He might not have called all of us to give up our careers and our homes, but he has called us all to live sacrificial lives, to use all the gifts and the talents and the resources he has given us in his service. And so God hasn't called all of us here to be preachers and evangelists. But, as the Apostle Peter writes, he has called all of us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So he has called all of us to be looking for opportunities to share our hope in Jesus. And again, when we hear this, people get nervous. I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't know how to do that. Well, I think that's why Peter says, always be prepared. We can't expect it just to come naturally to us. We need to think about it, to work on it, to pray about it, to equip ourselves. Some of us are great at doing this and some of us have been using as an excuse for far too long, I don't know what to say. Peter says, always be prepared. If you've been around church for some time, if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you need to be prepared to think about it, to take initiative to work out how you can equip yourself for that. So not all of us are called to be preachers and evangelists. Not all of us are called to go to other places. But we all have responsibilities. And as a church, we have a responsibility to support those who have gone, who have been sent out, whether it's to, for local mission or further afield. And as we support those people, then we're partners with them in their work, partners in the gospel. And we do have a real responsibility for those sent out in our name, those we've committed to supporting. So I want us to think through now, just briefly, three ways in which we as a church and as individuals might be supporting those who have been sent out in our name, those who we have a responsibility for. And I want to talk about how we can do that financially, prayerfully and encouragingly. Firstly, financially. The support mission is a call for us to be generous. God calls us to be generous. He gives us resources, financial resources, that we have a responsibility to use. And so God calls us to be generous with what he's given us. And as a church, I think we are generous. I, I see it in in how people give sacrificially. There's an extra degree of sacrifice that's required to support mission, though. An extra degree of selflessness. 
Because as we give sacrificially to support the ministry here at St. Stephen's, as I know many of you do, you give sacrificially, but you still gain something from it. You're supporting ministries which minister to you. You're freeing Graham and me up so that we can be devoted to ministry here at St. Stephen's. You pay for electricity so we can have lights and air conditioning and heating. You pay for all those things. But the very thing about supporting mission is we're being generous to support a ministry that we ourselves will not benefit from. There's a cost to us of that. I'm very mindful of of that when when I first um, spoke about going into Army Reserve Chaplaincy. There's a cost for you as a church for me to do Army Reserve Chaplaincy. Uh, It's not great. Uh, I mean, the chaplaincy is great. The cost isn't great. Um, What what it means is that... uh, And I I went to to Graham and then to the wardens and parish council and said, this is something I'm interested in doing, but I I don't want this to be my hobby that I go off and do. I I want the church to be seen as sending me to this ministry. And it will cost the church. It will cost half a day a week or or sometimes a couple of weeks away each year where I'm not doing ministry amongst you. There is a cost uh, for me to be freed up to do that ministry. Uh, But for many of the link missionaries we support, there's a, a much greater cost, a financial cost of supporting them Uh, of uh, covering their housing and living expenses and everything else and the resources they need for their ministry. Uh, And it's a ministry that we don't gain any direct benefit from. So we're called to be generous. But our link missionaries uh, sent out in our name don't want us just to be their ATM. No doubt they're grateful that they can afford somewhere to live and food on the table. But we have a a greater responsibility, a greater opportunity for relationship with them. Uh, So in addition to giving generously, um, we we have the opportunity to stand alongside them through prayer and encouragement. Probably the, uh, the greatest or most influential missionary in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And he desperately craved the prayers of the churches uh, who sent him out and those he had ministered to. So he writes to the Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there. And he writes to the Colossians, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. We have the opportunity to support our missionaries by praying for them. And there's some really practical ways we can do this. All all our link missionaries uh, provide prayer letters, updates about uh, how their ministry is going. Uh, A lot of them you can just subscribe to and get in your email box. Uh, And that can shape your prayers. It's great to pray for them uh, and to be thinking about them, but but when they give us specific prayer points, our prayers can be more 
specific. Uh, and something I can find helpful too is to find things that prompt you to pray. Uh, I had a missionary come to a church I was previously at. They were from Tanzania uh, and they encouraged, so there are zebras apparently in Tanzania, um, and so uh, their encouragement was every time you drive past a zebra crossing, pray for Tanzania <laughs> or Namibia. I forget which one. Uh, but, but find things that prompt you to pray. When you get up in the morning and uh, you're not quite awake and you turn the kettle on and it takes three minutes to boil, that's three minutes. Why don't you make that your habit of praying for one of our link missionaries? Find some activity that will prompt you to pray for them. Uh, and perhaps as connect groups, we can adopt particular link missionaries. That as a connect group, we're going to be responsible for writing to them and praying for them uh, and encouraging them. So we can give, we can pray, uh, and we can encourage through communication. Mission work can be a, a lonely business. Uh, often outside of a strong church community, uh, and, and it's easy to forget people. We remember them when they come back for their visits and, and we, we pray for them for six months after they go. Uh, and then we forget about them. Uh, so it's encouraging to them and to us uh, if we communicate with them, write to them, email them, even Skype them. Uh, to write about the things that they've told us about beforehand. To remember their children and their children's birthdays. Uh, and to develop those relationships when they are back with us. So three things we can do. We can support them financially through prayer and through encouragement. And as we do that, as we support missions and missionaries, as we pray that more will be raised up uh, and pray for their witness where God had placed them, and as we ourselves seek to be faithful witnesses where God has placed us, then together with them we are partners in the gospel. And in fact, not just partners with those link missionaries. Because as we do that, we're partners with God as he brings about his plan. As he brings about his plan to gather people from every nation, tribe, people and language. To see them standing before Christ's throne and enjoying the worship and honour due to him. God gives us the privilege of partnering with him in bringing about that. What a privilege that is. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, the book of Revelation gives us this great scene with people of every tribe, nation and language gathered around Christ's throne. We rejoice in your love and compassion for the whole world and pray that your word would be known in every culture and among every people. Lord of the harvest, by the gifts of your Holy Spirit, you have equipped your people to serve you throughout the world. So we ask that you would send out an increasing number of missionaries to build up your church locally and take your gospel to all nations. Give us ears to hear your call and to respond appropriately to it. And Father, in obedience to the command of Jesus, we pray that you will send out labourers into the harvest field and that as we send out these labourers, 
to work for you. Give us generous minds and wills so that we will support them financially in prayer and in encouragement. May your work be done in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.